This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 208 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. January showers have not turned into February flowers for Georgia State men's hoops as their losing streak has reached six after an 0-2 week at home. But luckily for all, women's basketball had a perfect week, and it was fairly newsy for football as well, and that's where we'll start. In football, linebacker John Trey Hunter and late addition offensive line Travis Glover represented GSU at the 2024 Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama. Glover was not slated to be on the roster, but was an injury replacement for Kentucky's Jeremy Flax and caught the eye of many draft watchers in attendance. He was on the American team while Hunter played on the national defense. Hunter has since been invited to participate in the 2024 NFL Combine, another sign of his rising draft prospect status. So, gentlemen, thoughts on the Senior Bowl? You know, I was caught off guard by the Travis Glover Senior Bowl stuff. Like, I saw him on a graphic uh, for Senior Bowl that Georgia State football put out. And for a second, I was like, did they put the wrong player on? Just because I had not seen the news come across that he had been invited last second. And I almost feel like it played to his advantage because I saw the tweets of a few guys that were there credentialed covering it from the draft media perspective. And it was like, a, who is this guy? Oh, who is this guy? As they just kept seeing him really get good reps out there. And so it almost felt like a benefit to him that he didn't have any time to think about it. He hopped on a plane to Mobile, basically, I think the day before practices started and just went out there and played football. And I think he really did a lot of good for his stock this week. Like, I don't know that I had it on my radar that he was going to potentially get drafted. And at this point, I don't know that I expected, but I think he's at least making a camp with the, out of, you know, undrafted free agency, if nothing else at this point. And I guess I wasn't sure if that was the case a month ago, but I think circumstances work out the way they do. And this felt like one of those perfect storms that really helped a guy in Travis Glover make his name on the draft scene. Yeah, it's always fun when you, you know, if you follow the NFL at all and, you know, you care about your team's draft or just drafts in general, it's always fun to see guys who, you know, either have some conference status, if you will, um, but are not necessarily nationally recognized draft prospects, just have, you know, a bit of helium going into this time of year. I mean, this time of year, specifically with the NFL, is the time when a lot of guys who either have their name and, you know, their name is out there and they either do poorly um, or it's a chance for guys who don't have their name out there to really rise up some draft boards. You know, I don't think either you or I are, you know, thinking that Glover is going to go like top five or anything in the first round. But I think there was legitimate questions on if he had a future in the NFL, you know, during the actual fall season. And given what some of the talent evaluators have been saying about him and just kind of the bump in press that he's been getting the last, you know, few days, I think there's a very strong chance that he's not even going to be an undrafted guy. He's going to be somebody who just is just plain old drafted and, you know, has the opportunity to go through a rookie camp and, you know, try to make a team. Definitely, I think helping him that he has got the inside outside versatility where played most of his time in college at tackle, either left tackle or right tackle, but did kick inside to guard last year. Didn't last very long because offensive line wasn't great last year. They needed to move some pieces around and he ended up finishing the year back at tackle. But it felt like a little bit of a nod. They felt like that's maybe where 
pro teams were going to look at him at. And so not brand new for him to play inside. And I think when you're talking about making a roster, if you're not a bona fide, you know, that top five pick that David, you were just talking about being able to play one of the guard positions, one of the tackle positions, maybe be like a swing tackle with a little bit of inside versatility. That is super valuable when you're talking about a 53 man roster, because if you're not a starter on the offensive line of the NFL, you've got to be a guy that you can pencil in for a couple of spots in a game because that's how you make the team. That's how you avoid ending up in the practice squad or not making it just because you don't have enough of that versatility. But beyond what we have to say, I wanted to circle to someone who I think is a better football mind than me and who was in Mobile who covers this stuff. Arif Hassan is he has a Substack. I think he used to cover the Vikings. I think he wrote for the Athletic. Um, it's the WideLeftPost.substack.com, and he wrote a piece, kind of what I was talking about. Uh, it is titled "What the F Am I Doing at the Senior Bowl?" Uh, except he doesn't say F. But his kind of premise of his article is that he shows up to the Senior Bowl, and he has done for a few seasons without really following the draft class super deep as, as much as some other guys who were going there kind of already with a big board in mind and they've done the scouting throughout the season. And he mentions Glover as an example of someone that he noticed and really picked up on and didn't have any kind of stereotypes about because of what he had preconceptions about the class. And the, the way he puts it is this. Glover is unranked by PFF, ESPN, Draft Tech, and Draft Countdown. Having watched the film of Glover and his senior day reps, I think he's a day two prospect. He moves as well as any first round tackle prospect with the size and physicality requisite of that kind of a player. And he goes on to say that it feels like an advantage fresh eyes offered me over someone with a great command of the class is what enabled him to just come away really impressed with a guy like Glover. And so that's kind of what I was talking about uh, firsthand from someone who was in Mobile forming a really good opinion of this guy as he was thrust into this moment. And, you know, for a lot of guys to have very long NFL careers, that type of thing is just all it takes. You need one guy to say something, to have a report, to then give it to a draft, you know, person on a team. Obviously, I don't know if Arif actually works with teams. It seems like he's more independent, but, you know, let's say we're actually talking about in an organization. Somebody can see what Arif saw pass it on to a GM, Glover gets drafted, boom, 20, you know, 15, 20 year career right there. I'm not saying that's actually going to happen, but seriously, that's all it really takes. You really just want to have, you know, a good day, a good week. And, you know, sometimes that's where the small chances of you having a successful career, that's where it's made instead of, you know, anything that you put on film before then. And I think we were already thinking John Trey was in a good spot to at least get picked when he got this invite, I feel like getting invited to Combine kind of further cinches it for me that I'm expecting his name to be called maybe on day three, maybe not on day two. We'll kind of see where it lands and see who likes him where. But I feel pretty confident at this point that Georgia State's going to have a draft pick in the 2024 NFL draft. Um, and like with Glover, he's another guy that offers versatility and he's played a few roles in his college career that I think is going to make him attractive for defenses, you know, a guy that maybe you can work at a couple of different spots because of his size and what he's done in the past is an easier way to make a 53-man roster on the defensive side. And I think both of them had meetings with the Eagles at the Senior Bowl. 
on a personal level, wouldn't love if either of them ended up with the Eagles, but uh, they're already getting meetings out of this situation. And so the practices getting to go up against good against good with all these players, possibility of meeting with teams and getting on the, you know, getting on the list of like, Oh, let's go watch this guy's tape with the NFL scouts that are there trying to take in all of these pro potential pro talents. That's all why making the senior bowl and being a part of it is so good for prospective uh, players. And both of them for the first time, Georgia state had multiple players at one senior bowl. And so good week all in all for Georgia state football. And, you know, as, as Sean Elliott is having to wrestle with modern NIL transfer portal, everything that goes on with that. I don't think it's a bad thing for him to have in his pocket now to have these two guys that stayed for their whole careers at Georgia state and look to be in a good position to still get drafted and have their pro career start. Obviously Jamari thrash was also there. He was at Louisville. He had transferred from Georgia state to Louisville. So you're still going to have, you can look at it very clearly that guys can up their stock by making those transfers and that's not going away. But I still think it is helpful for Georgia state, whether it's, guys they're trying to recruit now or whether it's keeping guys on the roster who do well here. You've got a couple of success stories there that have stayed and were through blue and white the entire time they were there and still got what they wanted at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of guys want to play football because they like football, of course, but for a lot of them playing college football is a stepping stone to playing in the, at the next level, you know, like that's, that's why they suited up and, you know, they allow themselves to have that agency to go to whatever college they want. But a lot of guys do go to colleges to put themselves in the best position to make it at that next level. You know, there is a version of this program that, you know, regardless of whatever the results are on the field, they're still putting NFL talent in there. And I think uh, off the top of my head, I believe Chandon was the last like regular ish person i know will lutz came back but you know i know that with georgia state specifically it has not been necessarily a untapped fountain but you know still getting guys into the nfl like at the end of the day a lot of recruits see that more than they'll care you know are you winning championships or you know winning your conference like yeah they still want to do that but that nfl is what matters way more for a lot of people yeah and Again, like it was the first time that Georgia State will have had two people in the Senior Bowl, it would be the first time that Georgia State would have multiple picks in the same draft. Like you say, it's been a few years since they've had someone really take off in the NFL. It's been a few years since they've had someone drafted at all. And so this would be a a big year for winning back some of that momentum and building that out because for all that you know they've done with going to some bowl games they don't have an extended successful history in the draft and they're still working on that selling point. But when you have a year like this, where you might have two guys end up getting the name called that can go a long way to getting you on that trajectory. And so we will see how all that plays off, how that plays out as the draft season continues on heading into April. All right. And the next item of business for football is that we have some coaching news. Secondary coach slash defensive pass game coordinator Corey Peoples has taken a job with Georgia Tech. This is the first coaching vacancy of the offseason for the Panthers, and they won't have to wait long to see their old colleague and coach as the two Atlanta FBS programs open up 2024 against each other in August. Peoples had been with Georgia State since 2020, overseeing the cornerbacks and the safeties at different points in his tenure. Gentlemen, thoughts? 
I did say on Twitter when I was tweeting this news out, at least it wasn't during spring practice this time. Uh, spring practice is right around the corner, but you're not having to replace another, I guess, major coach on the defensive side of the ball for the second year in a row and the coordinator at all for the third year in a row. It's certainly a loss. Um, you you have no, you know, it's easy to see why Brent Key wanted a guy like Peoples who's taken just progressively more and more of a role here at Georgia State since he got here. He came as just the cornerback's coach and he left overseeing the secondary while also kind of shepherding shepherding along Antrell Allen in a secondary coach role, added the defensive pass game coordinator uh, title along with uh, all the rest of it and going to be a loss. I do look at it as an interesting opportunity see how the staff kind of shakes out now because Chad Staggs has coached safeties in the past. It's what he, his position when he was at Coastal for, I think, all but one of one or two of the years he was in uh, Conway. So maybe he takes a vacant spot in the secondary and you add a coach somewhere else on the defense. Maybe you go out and hire you know, whichever secondary position you want and you slide Antrell in the other spot and Coach Staggs stays without a position. It it gives them a real chance and gives Coach Staggs a real chance to really put his stamp on the defense of staff because he didn't get a chance to do that when he came in and was the only addition to the defensive side of the ball last offseason. Uh, and, you know, chance to just – it'll be interesting to see where it lands. Funnily enough, there's a chance for the funniest thing ever – uh, Lorenzo Ward is the defensive coordinator for Chattanooga, and he is a guy that was on staff uh, for a few years at the same time as Sean Elliott was on staff at South Carolina. He's a name that got thrown out, I think, for defensive coordinator just by people throwing names on a hot board each of the times the position opened for Georgia State. I don't think that he would take a demotion to come to Georgia State, but I just think it would be very funny if after Georgia Tech poaches Georgia State's coach, Georgia State does it to Chattanooga who is Georgia State's next opponents on the schedule. And I would only say that at that point, Chattanooga's got to take a coach from their third team on their schedule and just keep the train rolling and just this rolling carousel of the schedule keeping going. I don't think it's going to happen, but I just wanted to put that very funny outcome out there. No, I'm glad that you put it out there because it definitely is funny. And I wish that it could happen, but you're right. It's probably not going to happen. Um you know, I think your thoughts were said very eloquently. I don't have a ton to add. I will just say, like you said earlier, I'm very glad this didn't happen during the spring practice because I feel like anytime Georgia State has lost the coach either of the last few years, it's been at the absolute worst time for it to happen for them specifically. So, you know, there are certainly worse times than between the two signing portals to lose a coach like this. You know, obviously, which co- wish coach well, um, you know, Georgia Tech. There's something that, you know, there might be some some stuff there. They certainly had a better year this year than I think the last couple of years. And, you know, maybe this is the start of that other. What was it like a 40 year bowling streak or something like that? Um, you know, maybe this is the start of another one of those. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a loss for Georgia State. And there is now just like a ton of skin in the game for the, even more than it was already going to be with this opener, because you've got. Corey Peoples going to Georgia Tech and the other way you've got Kenyatta Watson and Zach Gibson coming to Georgia State from Georgia Tech. And so a lot of interpersonal friendships and relationships going to be involved in that game early, uh, early season next year, opener next year. All right. Now it's time to move on to basketball Uh, for the men. Again, it was an 0-2 week 
with an 81-71 loss to App State on Thursday and a 78-74 loss to Troy on Saturday afternoon in the Convocation Center. Uh, it was two games that were barely ever out of for the Panthers against the top two teams in the Sun Belt, but close losses are still losses, and the Panthers have six of those in a row now, sitting at 9-13 and on the season, 4-7 and in Sun Belt play. Uh, gentlemen, thoughts on these two games? I mean, I have thoughts on the games. <laughs> Are they necessarily positive thoughts? I, I suppose I, we'll get into that. <laughs> I think it's a different week than the last couple of winless weeks because we it's went in this one kind of knowing they were going to have to play their A game in either of these to win because App State and Troy are both good teams. And I think they played gamely, certainly against Troy especially. They were trailing for most of the way, but they kept it within striking distance the entire time until basically the last 40 seconds. But... It was not an A game. They didn't make enough plays. And so they end up being losses. And they're at the point in the season where they needed to start stacking wins and get back in control of their own fate. And they weren't able to do it this week. So they're going to take an upset, but they didn't get either of those upsets. And you know, the rut continues. Yeah, I like the word that you use there, the ruts, because I feel like when things were going well for Georgia State, some of the stuff that, you know, we saw even this weekend against better teams, just it wasn't happening, you know, and a saving grace for Georgia State this past weekend was the number one team in the conference came to Atlanta. The number two team in the conference came to Atlanta. They lost by 10 which it should have been closer. I don't think 10 was necessarily indicative of the final score with App State. Um, but, you know, 10 is 10. And then they lost by four to Troy. Now, same token, Lucas Taylor did hit a three in the final seconds to make that not a seven-point loss. So that score may be also a little misleading. Correct, yes. Um, I think watching the games and the thing that I struggle with because... I think I have just rounded into talent is the problem with Georgia State more than anything. Um, watching those two games, specifically App State. Georgia State did that thing in the first half where, you know, they kind of struggled and kind of let the other team do their thing. And then as you get closer and closer to, you know, the halfway point in the game, Georgia State goes on a run and is able to actually stop you know, App State um, or just their opponent in general, like at, with three minutes left, three minutes and 30 seconds left in the first App State was up nine and like Georgia State really wasn't getting anything going. And in those in between that moment to halftime, Georgia State won an 11, went on an 11 to two run to tie it and go into halftime tied at 30. And you're like, OK, Georgia State is really here. And then the second half kind of happens and, you know, App State gets off to a really good start. They hit a couple baskets. Georgia State struggles to get off, you know, get anything offensively going. And then they start finally clamping down on defense and still can't get anything going offensively. And then they just kind of trade runs until the end there. Um, Georgia State puts up a little bit of a fight, but there was a moment where it was basically like, OK, App State basically can't score again. They did. And Georgia State loses. and. I don't even, you know, Georgia State had six turnovers. They got out-rebounded 49 to 41. You know, they shot 38 from the floor and 42 from three. Okay, you know, that from a percentage perspective, that's a better three-point shooting game than Georgia State's had. I mean, they hit eight threes. Like, that's, you know, for Georgia State, that's really solid. And, you uh, know. 42% is solid for anyone. Yes. 
Forty percent is sorry. The eight. Yeah, the eight was what I was referring to with that. A a Uh, great percentage. Great percentage, but the eight. You know, Georgia State is not hitting eight threes a game. You know, this year typically, and it just wasn't enough. You know, and I think, I think the. I don't want to say unfortunate, but like the thing that like just really impressed me the most about App State is they just didn't really make a lot of mistakes. You know, I mean, we could talk about the 65 percent from the free throw line. Sure. You know, we could talk about that is just clearly they haven't. That is a weakness of their team and it might cost them in March. That might be the reason they lose a game in Pensacola. I agree. Their fans are aware of it. Their teams, I'm sure, aware of it. But like they just aren't a great free throw shooting team. And so far, it has not cost them their 19 and four despite that. Correct. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it just, it really looked like a team that just came into Atlanta and just has more talent, you know, is more cohesive as a unit, you know, didn't necessarily during the periods where they weren't scoring, um, didn't necessarily scramble to get offense going at the same rate that Georgia state does, you know, like there's only so much that we can really say, about each and every win loss or whatever and like it 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 sucks because of the way last year was where talent was the biggest differentiator between georgia state and a lot of schools i think last year if last year's team played this game it would not have been a 10 point loss you know which is which is unfair because i I don't want to say a 10 point loss is progress because that's that's not what i'm trying to say um what i am trying to say though is for a lot of this difficult stretch that Georgia State's in, you know, we we could probably talk about one specific play, one specific thing. At the end of the day, I really just have started to think that it's it's just a talent problem. And this year's team, you know, whether it be injuries that we don't know about, whether it be guys have, you know, kind of looked at the standings and, you know, checked out because we're talking about, you know, young people. Um I just right now, the talent is just very loudly saying that this team is not playing good basketball. And that's that's all it really is to me anyway. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know if I fully agree with that. I mean, I think it is a better team last year for sure. And like they are hanging in these games. I just think that that what cost them in this game against App State is the defense specifically. They just cannot stack stops together they ended up allowing 16 to 27 in the second half against app state which is how they put up 51 points against georgia state and kind of controlled things led by as much as 17 to one point and you know there's a size issue obviously we've talked about it at nauseum you know, your four man is Jaden turner who's really a guard or guard size six five and it is what it is but this team's getting caught out too much for transition defense for being, you know, you cannot be both bad in transition defense and also undersized. And one of those is controllable. And they got caught out in transition a few times and just other times they just weren't staying in front of guys and easy baskets or guy gets through the lane and then kicks it out. They get three off of it. App state had a plan. And I think Panthers did a good job in the first half of disrupting them. And that's why they stayed in the game is, defensively they were doing more to be aggressive be in their face and that's something that carried over into saturday as well certainly encouraging to see them do stuff like that because they just aren't good enough in the half court to defend teams and if they're not forcing turnovers which is a major issue it's getting worse it's not getting better 
You know, obviously them having only committed six turnovers is great. They only forced six. Not great. You know, and so it does overshadow the fact that eight of 19 from three is great. You take that every day, twice on Sunday. 16 assists in this game. They really started moving the ball. And it wasn't just Dewan. You know, Dewan was in a four-way tie for the team leading assists in this game as Julian Mackey had three, Tanari Lane had three, Lucas Taylor had three, along with Dewan. They were sharing the basketball a lot better. Defense got in the way for them, and they just they could not get stops. Even when they were hanging in the second half, they just couldn't get stops. And then in that moment where their shooting went dry and they continued to not getting stops, that's when that you know, stepped their uh, foot on their throat, just put the game away. Once they started, I think it was two transition threes, at least one of them by Terrence Harkham, that just kept adding on to the score. And, and there was a certain one that just felt like, all right, that's game. And I don't think that this game, the, the reason why I also want to push back on the whole talent thing is like, yes, they're worse than that App State team. They are less talented that, than that very good, very well-coached App State team. And this isn't the week where I'm going to really make broad takeaways about the makeup of this team because they didn't play their A game and that's why they lost. But in both their games, I think on balance, the way they played against this App State team stands up with a few of the other teams that are higher in the conference than Georgia State. So I think they played the situation well. I'm just not going to take any too much away from it because of the fact of like, oh, they're not talented enough. Like we kind of knew that going in. Like we talked about this being the top team in the conference and we knew what they were. And so it feels a little unfair from my perspective to be like, see, they're not very good. They're not talented enough. And it's when it's like we we kind of knew that about App State being the superior team. So as it continues, and if, if they play Texas State and they're playing in the muck with them at home, and if they're struggling with the Coastal team who came back on them when they play at home, maybe return the conversation to that because, yeah. And clearly they're not a, a good enough team just to persevere in these situations. Like it, They are entering their 23rd game this year with the same record as they had last year. So kind of incumbent on them to start stealing some wins to beat the suggestion that they are no better than last year's team. But I don't know. This didn't feel like the week for me to kind of take the big picture look because it was, you always knew you were talking in terms of like, are you going to upset this team or this team or not? That's what I mean, though. You know, like, I don't think when I say that I, there weren't talented enough, I don't mean this is not a talented team. Um, you know, they are really running up against the schedule from last year. Because, I, like, I still think this is a better team than last year. Like, you know, we have watched them play and, you know, sometimes better. Yes, you are what your record says. But, you know, we are sports fans at the end of the day, sports media at the end of the day. We're not dumb. You know, if, if your team last year was a bunch of guys who, you know, didn't know what a rebound was and then you get a good player this year and they get hurt, like obviously context is, you know, important when talking about records. That's not necessarily what happened last year. Um, but what I mean by not talented enough, I truthfully just mean that I don't know where the talent lies with this team in terms of some of the better teams in the conference. You know, I think there is a version of Georgia State this year that does, I mean, there's plenty of schedule left. You know, I've got it pulled up right here. There's what, eight games left? Through some quick counting? Yeah, there's eight games left. They could win all eight games. 
blow out last year's record out of the water. You know, Bird I, is doing a lot of work in that sentence. <laughs> it's fair. Um, but you five know. of those I chalk up as very, very winnable games. And that, exactly. would be, that would be enough separation where it still would be a disappointment, I think. And like I was saying last week with your losses to Coastal and George Southern, damage might already be done as far as that goes. You might not be able to get it to a winning record, and that is still going to feel like a disappointment. But we might be arguing the same side or like different side of the same coin. It might be we're just kind of talking around saying the same point, but I just didn't really have... I didn't look at it in that exact way, but I guess that's why we have multiple views on a podcast and we each share our views and we talk through it and we just work through it all. That's true, you know, and I think to, I guess to juxtapose the game with App State with the game against Troy, I think you could really see the vision for what Georgia State is trying to do this year. And part of why I, you know, I'll, you know, stamp my flag on the talent take only because I think if Georgia State was a little bit more talented, they would have pulled this upset against Troy. I really do. I really think like I feel like Troy had to earn the win that they got on Saturday. Very much so they had to earn it because it was late in the game and Georgia State just absolutely would not go away. And I mean, I think the main difference between the two games is Georgia State shot the three ball a little bit worse, even though they hit the same number of threes. But they they actually got to the line, were driving, Troy was fouling, and Georgia State hit their free throws. They didn't really take a ton of free throws against App State, which, you know, given how App State has been playing their bigs, that made a lot of sense for that game. And for Georgia State in this game, Georgia State's bigs, I felt like played much better, looked a lot more comfortable, and... As a result, it was a much closer game and a game that Georgia State had an opportunity to win. I, I'm not going to say that they should have won it, but they at least had an opportunity to keep it close. It wasn't until very, very late Detroit really start separating, you know, and like you said earlier in the podcast, it took a late three to cut it to what it ended up being instead of being a seven point loss. Yeah, I mean, the other reason I kind of skirt around the talent thing is we see what they were doing there late game against Troy. They were down nine. Troy took their largest lead of the game with under four minutes to go. Like they'd been hanging around. It was still a game all the way through. They tied it, uh, took the lead briefly in the second half, but then Troy went back on a run. And at that point, it's like, all right, they're down nine. They haven't really shown ability to get stops at a big clip here in the second half in this moment. Again, lingering problem for this team. But then they showed some energy there. They showed some full court pressure. They forced some turnovers. They got back into the game. They had a chance to really cut it down to sing, you know, single possession and really get uh, get Troy nervous, but couldn't hit enough shots down the stretch. And then that sequence where they could not get a rebound. And, and that was the biggest thing from that game. They were minus 16 on the glass. Troy had 20 offensive rebounds. And in that final sequence, they were, there were two separate times in the final uh, two minutes or so where one possession, Troy got two offensive rebounds, ended up being they got to the line and made two free throws, made it from what had been a four point game chance to get possession down four with plenty of time left. Ends up being a six point lead for Troy. Next possession down, George State scores. Uh, they cut it back to four. And again, they get a stop. They get a forced uh, or a missed shot. And the Troy guy beats uh, Lucas Taylor to the rebound and just puts it up in the same motion and makes it a six-point game. And at that point, there were 40 seconds left. And so you're down six with very little time. That's basically one of those, like, everything has to go your way moments. And 
Georgia State misses a shot, and it very much doesn't. Um, they played it out for all 40, but the reason, again, I go back to you know, what we've been talking about, it's more about where is that all 40 minutes? Because they played really tight defense in the first half against Troy, and again, kind of like they did against App State. Kept them out of the rhythm. They were getting deflections and some turnovers, and just generally, you, you saw a different Georgia State defense. You saw them going more all out and risking it and yeah you might blow an assignment here or there or leave a guy open in the corner but it's because you were trying to make a play happen and that's not really on the players as far as you know having like you've got to from the coaching side recognize earlier that that's the type of defense you need to run and you've got to find a way to tap into that where it's not either when you're down nine and you're having to have a come like if they're playing defense like that for all 40 minutes in basically any of these games on this losing streak, they stand a much better chance of winning that game, even for any proportion of that 40 minutes. But it feels like they can hit that little gear when they need to down the stretch, and sometimes they come out of the gates firing, but they just aren't consistently playing that level of intensity defensively, and that's what's costing them in games. Also costing them as far as attacking the glass. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I think a lot of the little things that really separates, you know, some teams, Georgia State shows that they can do them. And then, you know, like you said at the end there, in the Troy game, it just kind of escapes them. Next up for the men, a half sea week as they will head to Lafayette and play Louisiana on Wednesday night before hosting Miami, Ohio, Saturday in the finale of the Max Sunbelt Challenge. The Cajuns are on a totally different path. From Georgia State, winners of their last six, sporting a total record of 15 and 8. For another month at least, they're the reigning Sunbelt champions after representing the league in the big dance last season. As for the Red Hawks of Miami, they enter the week even Stevens at 11 11 and match up better with the Panthers, but they did hand league leaders Akron their sole loss in MAC play, so there will be no pushovers. Gentlemen, thoughts on these upcoming uh, games? Yeah, it was actually friend of the pod, Dave Cohen, voice of the Panthers, who reminded me at the uh, one of the games this week that it was not just that George Day was playing number one and number two in a row. They also were playing number one, number two, and number three in a row because Louisiana was on the schedule after and it's on the road. And so this is a continuation of a pretty brutal stretch when you were already on tilt a little bit. So if it makes you feel any better... After they play Miami, Ohio, they face James Madison. So, you know, that's they're, the, they're also yeah, good. So yeah, as we were talking about the schedule earlier, like I mentioned, those five of eight that are winnable, those are mostly near the end. Like it does not stack up favorably until really that final homestand of four games for Georgia State. But look, it's the same proposition as this past week, except this time you're on the road. This is a Louisiana team that has scored 80 in all but one of the games in this winning streak. And in the one game where they didn't score 80, Texas State only scored 46. And so they were in a pretty good position, even though they only managed a measly 66 points in that game. So point one is just hold them under 80, which has been an issue defensive, you know, defense in general for this team. So it doesn't match up great. You're going on the road. Not sure where the team's confidence is at, where you're pretty sure Louisiana's feeling good about themselves. So this is another one where you're just going to have to show up on the road. You're going to have to play your best game to win this game. Certainly, you look at Miami at home in the Saturday game as the more winnable game this week. 
it's not a conference game, so it really wouldn't do all that much for you except return the vibes. But it might just be that this team needs one win to get the vibes back. And I don't think they've lost belief. You know, I don't think that they've checked out something you had talked about as a possibility earlier. Like it feels like they are still engaged. Seeing Lucas Taylor and Dewan Odom post game after the game with uh, Jonas, it was not the face of dejected players. It was. It still feels like they're there and they believe they're going to turn it around. And I certainly believe, even as Jonas says stuff that reads very coach speaky and like we're going to turn it around. You know, it's a team under construction, but we're working on it. I do believe he believes that, but I also know that at this point. That's very cold comfort to a fan base that's expected a lot more winning that's going on. But I still think that despite all losing, it doesn't feel like this is a team that's in the same type of free fall as they were last year. But you've got another game this week on Wednesday against a good team on the road this time that you might still be waiting for that turnaround to come because this is a tall task ahead of them. Would you say that it'd be unfair to just bunch the schedule as the reason for the performance lately? Because I, I yes. do agree with you because I, I don't, would. <laughs> I, I don't want to just say that the schedule is tough because the schedule is what it is. Like, it's always going to be tough, you know, um, I don't. And I think last year's was because of the way that the uh, away games worked. I think this year was a little bit more favorable than last year was anyways. Um yeah, no, I don't really give any credence to that. Like, App State's a good team. Marshall's a good team. You still had a chance to win that Marshall game, and you very should have beaten Georgia Southern and Coastal, even though those were road games. Like, Georgia Southern may be a lot better than their record suggests, and they're certainly playing a lot better as of now, and it's a rivalry, but you know, just because right now you're playing App State and Troy and Louisiana in quick succession doesn't mean you didn't lose a few of those winnable games beforehand. And so, yeah, it's on the road, whatever. Like, the schedule is what it is. I don't think you can really say they're losing. It's not a byproduct of the schedule. They've had some tendencies that they have not really corrected, and that's cost them in these games is what I would think would be a more fair description of what's gone on. Yeah, that's fair. That's definitely a better way of phrasing it. And I mean, look, when this streak started, Georgia state went to Boone and we talked about how they played a very good game against the presumably good team and just couldn't find a way to, you know, get the job done at the end there. They could have a week where they do that and they could come away with a win. They could have a week where they do that and they not. So Ultimately, I think the best way for Georgia State is to really kind of end the slide. They just got to keep playing well, you know, I, and I, I will say if they play well over both games in the week, I think it's going to help them feel a lot better about their chances of whatever it is that they want to feel better about at the end by the end of the season. Look, there are teams that are going to be better than you. That's fine. You still have to play the games, but, you know, you're not always going to be the best team, but you can still force the best teams to you know, bring their A game. You can still force the best teams to actually make you lose the game. That's how the Troy game was played. And, you know, that might sound like a cop out or, a you know, small victory or, you know, whatever the phrase is. But I really think with where this team is, they're going to ca- they can catch somebody and win a game like that because they are so good at some of the little things. They're so good from the free throw line that, you know, they're so good at at least minimizing their mistakes and, at least when it comes to them committing turnovers, 
a lot of what I see on defense can be coached into, you know, not necessarily over the course of a season. Like it's not very simple stuff, but you know, sometimes it's just positioning and understanding tendencies and what to look for, you know, when it comes to transition defense, it's, you know, feeling for a guy on a box out. So he doesn't get easy offensive rebounds, you know, and gets puts backs. A lot of that is stuff that just can be, you know, when guys have chemistry and maturity in their basketball playing, it's stuff that they start to remember and they start to replicate. So, you know, I mean, we can have a conversation about the shot making and stuff like later. I think that, part of Georgia state has been fine more or less recently. I mean, you know, you can't score into the low seventies without at least some good shot making. Right. But it's really giving up 78 points, 81 points, 85 points, you know, 86 to Georgia Southern lately. That has been a much bigger part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, they can keep up for a while, at least and attract me with Louisiana, but it just, they're going to have to, have a moment where they take over defensively, which has eluded them in games that uh, were winnable all through this time. Uh, talking about you know making them earn it and whatever, Louisiana was the representative last year for the Sun Belt. Very good team. Georgia State, well-documented, struggled last in the conference. Georgia State played them in Lafayette last time and lost by eight. I, I do not think you would say on balance that those were teams with an eight-point difference. I think you'd say Louisiana would should win by a lot more than that, but they did scrap in this game last year, even though it was on the road. And I'm not really sure why this is happening two years in a row like this, but, you know, I don't really know the schedule stuff anyway, so we move on with that. Um, also, it was an Ed DeMoco, uh, a good game for him last year. I remember it was one of those, like, you saw the vision with what he was doing defensively against very good Jordan Brown. Uh, Jordan Brown's not there anymore, but they've still got a good team. And they are hot right now. So gonna have your hands full. Yeah, I mean, like you talk about 39% from three this last week. They were more picky with it, and I think it helped them. I think you found a lot of guys getting good looks. And honestly, there were a handful of good looks against Troy that just didn't fall. You know, Terrari Lane and J- Julian Mackey did not have great shooting days, but they had some shots that maybe they fall, result goes differently. But it's shots that you'd have them taking 50 times out of 10. You know, that they were getting to the right spots and they were not. We have seen this team, certainly saw it last year. We've seen it in spades this year as well, where they were just looking for the three and forcing the bad shots. And they've really worked that out of it. And I think Lucas Taylor specifically is really finding his his scoring. And it, it was a real loss for them in the Troy game that... He got a fourth foul with about eight minutes left and had to sit for four minutes. And they had defensive stuff they had to work out too and the rebounding stuff they had to work out as well. But he was really feeling it on Saturday. And so you lost what had been your best scorer in a pretty key stretch of the game. And that mattered. But as you're looking to go forward, no use crying about the spilt milk of that game. But Lucas feels like he's getting into his rhythm offensively. And that's important because he was already your leading scorer. But... Yeah, he's a guy that dropped in the high 20s a couple of times early in the year, and that's something you might need if you want to pull off an upset against Louisiana on Wednesday. I mean, I think the shot selection just all around has been a lot better. You know, there's still definitely been some, I don't even want to say issues, some poor shots, but I feel like Let's by call the most heat part. Checks. Yeah, yeah Let's he call checks. Let's call him heat checks. <laughs> he checks when you're cold, absolutely. Um there there have been some heat checks that uh, were a little bit ill-advised. 
but I think, you know, by the by, things have certainly improved in that aspect of it. It really is just, you know, have they been able to get stops to go along with, you know, some better and more consistent offense, some more fluid decision making? Because you're right. I think the decision making for the team has been better. You know, they've either just missed some bunnies or they've, you know, missed some of the looks that they've happened. They're like, if you take a good look, a wide open three and you miss it, you know, that's going to happen. Even Steph Curry misses some wide open threes. Like it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's, are you taking wide open threes with, you know, 25 seconds left on the shot clock with no passes happening or, you know, are there three people around you and you are taking said three. So, you know, I think, you know, Taylor and Lane have gotten better and, you know, it was unfortunate that Jaden Turner leading shot maker from three in this team shooting 36%. I was going to say in the Troy game, I don't remember when, but I know it was late and there was a shot that was taken by not Jaden Turner. Um, and I was like, man, I really wish Jaden was going to get the rebound. So it's not like he was open in the but corner. You were suddenly like he should have been the guy taking the shot, which is not a yes. thing that we would have thought going into this year. It was notable when he was taking him in the Belmont game because if you look at his numbers, I think he was in the 20% from three last year for Queens. It was like you were expecting rebounding. You weren't expecting a jump shooter. And he's really another guy that started to find it. And they're finding him in the catch and shoot game. And that's helping him as well. That he was three of eight. I think all of that you would you live with that because I think all eight of those shots were good catch and release, you know. And it looks good. Yeah, it, it looks really good, both in terms of going in and just in the form like that. I mean, I know he's a guard, so it's going to sound weird that I say this. But if you're expecting a forward like that's that's shooter. And, you know, all of this to say. And it's again why I don't want to, like, bemoan the talent side of it, because you are what you are at this point, And this team's got strengths and they got weaknesses. And it just goes back to the coaching staff maximizing the good and keeping them out of trouble with things they don't do well. You got to find a way, whatever it is, whether it's different drills and practice, whether it's different rotations, whatever it might be, teams are going to start attacking them in the second half in games with their size. They're going to crash the glass offensively because they know it's a weakness of this team or has been the last few games. And, Coaching staff is just going to have to work with it. You know, you're going to have to scrabble your way to some wins down the stretch because the playbook's out at this point. Um, but there is still the talent to win games for this team and find some semblance of positivity heading into Pensacola. But, you know, this week we'll see with the... I, again, you should break the streak against Miami. I think if we're talking about another 0-2 week, it's not, not a disrespect to Miami. They went and beat Akron. Certainly, they've got talent. They're a good three-point shooting team. Can't take them lightly, but with it being a home game and with it being the game in this stretch where you're playing one, two, three, and then you got James Madison on the other side, like that is the game you've got to get in the win column because it's going to be you know, the potential to be an oasis in a desert or it could just be another loss that adds to a number because if you lose that one, you're going to look at the James Madison one and you'll be like, that's another loss. And you're going to really worry about their ability to beat old dominion a second time on the road. And then you're going to, are they going to beat Marshall? Are they going to even manage to beat coastal this time? And 
I feel like a lot of those are days go away if you at least get the win. Like I'm talking from the fan perspective of talking yourself into wins. Like I think as long as they can write the ship in this winnable game this week, which is a winnable game, all is not going to be well, but it'll be better than it was through all of this losing. And you can enter next week with the real positivity and a little bit of a pep in your step. All right, and last but certainly not least, let's talk about women's basketball. They got two big-time wins this week as they knocked off the top three Sunbelt James Madison on Wednesday, 82-72, to before hammering rivals Georgia Southern 74-49 to to complete the series sweep over the Eagles. They're now 13-8 and on the season and sit in sixth place, stuck for now at the bottom of a three-way tie with ULM and Old Dominion at 7-4 and in league play. This week, they'll host Arkansas State on Wednesday night before also playing Miami, Ohio in the Max Sunbelt Challenge. But unlike the men, it'll be on the road. Gentlemen, thoughts on women's basketball this week? Yeah, just to clarify the, the situation with the standings, they're stuck at the bottom of three-way tie for a double bye. Like, they are in a, four-way, a three-way tie at this point for the fourth seed, which would get them all the way to the quarterfinals which is just an entire different realm to what this program has been in since all of us have been in school. And so you can't make up that tiebreaker on ULM. They beat you in Atlanta and you don't play them again. So some of this is going to be out of your control down the stretch if you are not able to just keep stacking wins together. But we're talking about the kind of conversations we have become accustomed to talking about the men's program as far as like, oh, we're entering February. They're at the top of the conference and... You know, they're in a good position if they can get these wins to be this, you know, two seed, three seed, four seed, whatever it is. Programs have flipped in that regard. This year, you know, this week was a good symbol of just that, like, this is a team that has taken a real step because that's a good James Madison team that you beat. And, you know, Southern was without Taryn Ward, their leading scorer, a really good player. And so that was a factor. But that wasn't the reason you won by as much as you did. You just showed up and played. Yeah, I don't know that she was going to make up the difference at a 25-point stomping. Um, I mean, the women are playing really good basketball right now. They're doing it on both ends. They're scoring, playing defense. You know, I mean, a lot of these, if you look at a lot of these wins, I mean, we're talking about 47 points, 66 points, 72 points, 49 points. They're not giving up a ton of points. I mean, even in the loss to Old Dominion, you know, offense kind of hurt them more than anything that day. I mean, yeah, if you go back to their first game in conference play, they did give up a solid 89 to Troy and then 82 to ULM. But, you know, for the most part, this has been a team that's been playing pretty good defense. You know, they hold other teams under 80. The women have shown that they're probably going to put up some good points and you're really going to want to be closer to that 80 mark if you want to beat them. So, I mean, they're playing really well right now. And I think the thing that's the most encouraging is it kind of doesn't matter who it is. It's kind of taking care of business, you know? I mean, they went on the road and won at Troy. Troy's 9-2, and two, better record than them. Yeah, until know? this week, Troy had not lost to another Sunbelt team. They went on an absolute tear after that conference opener against Georgia State, which they lost. They were 3-8 and eight at that point, and then they just went on a heater. Exactly, you know? And, I mean, Marshall's good team. That was a team that beat the women. Southern Miss, you know, might not be as good. That's a team that beat the women, Old Dominion. 
you know, around, they have their tied, obviously, like you said, so around uh, here, the same here's, record. Here's the thing with the road games, tying it back to the men's just general. You can do the road game thing when you lose a game here or there. Like when you drop at Southern Miss, like, yeah, maybe it's a team that neutral court you'd want to be. Even it's a game in the moment you felt like you'd win. That one went down to the wire. They couldn't stack enough plays together. But when you're still winning the other road games, you're going to Georgia Southern and winning and you're getting those other ones on the board. That's where you can be like winning on the road's hard. Exactly. Harder to make that point when you're just losing all of your games. Uh, but the, the women <laughs> exactly. are not doing that. And, and it's, you know, yeah. I love the old sports adage. You want to be 500 on the road and take care of business at home. Because to your point, that is exactly what this women's team has been doing. Yeah, you might lose. You drop a game on the road here. OK, but they're coming back home, sweeping, looking great against good teams, bad teams, whatever. And then they're still finding a way to get like that 500 on the road is actually so important. Um, I don't actually have their full home road splits up. Well, um, I, I wanted they're, to. They're five and four. So that, I mean, they've yeah. only played nine games, but, you know, and one that of those is, was at Clemson. You know, exactly. Got a big one in there. Like, so that's there you go. There's your 500 on the road, more or less. Yeah. And I wanted to circle back something you were talking about. You know, the defense is worth highlighting. But also the defense has been good in basically every season, at least good, if not great. The Gene Hill has been here. It's not the end of the year, so this isn't like a final statistic. But if the season ended today, it would be the first time since he had got here that they were in the top five of scoring offense. And so like for me, that's been the difference that they've been able to win some of these scrappy games over the years and maybe do a little bit better for their conference record in some of these seasons where it hasn't come together. And the difference has been that maybe it's been low scoring down the stretch and just they haven't had the scoring options to win those type of games. They're winning more of those games and they're also just putting teams away in a manner that they have not been accustomed to for a few seasons. And so what you've added with Crystal Henderson, what you added with Tolliver, Maya Williams has made a real difference. Um, Along that line, Arkansas State comes, they've got a six and five conference record. They've got a real player. Izzy Higginbotham, 23.3 points a game. Uh, You look at it, she is third in the conference in field goal percentage at 48.4%. She is tops in the conference with a 92.5 free throw percentage. And that is not on a small sample size. That is 149 made free throws on 161 attempts. So this is one of those games where you know the scouting report, you know you got to work to uh, stop or at least limit from killing you. And so that's going to be the test for them Wednesday against Arkansas State. Yeah, just looking at this Arkansas State roster, um, this is the, this is certainly going to be a fun game for the women to play in. Because, um, I mean, yeah, you've got Higginbottom running the show and, you know, being an insanely talented guard. But then, you know, you've also got Pendleton and Anna Griffin who are there. You know, I mean, all the worst of these three is 33% from three. The other two are 42 and a half and 41 and a half. Um, so I don't know the per game three attempts, but I know that anytime you see a four in somebody's three point percentage, even if they're only taking a few threes a game, that's, you know, you want to be defending that person usually around the wing. So. Um, hopefully the women decided to bring their good defense pants on instead of the bad defense pants this week. And then I don't know 
how deceiving Miami's five and fifteen record is three and seven in their conference games in the MAC. But it is it does look like one of those games where you're hoping you can get a win and keep the good feelings going. It is on the road, bit of a hike up to Oxford, Ohio. Forget which quadrant of the state that is in. I want to say it's in one of the corners, but I don't remember which one. But tough test coming in. I think the tougher of the games you look at it on paper is the home game this week. And so that does set up for kind of a tough, maybe you're going to try and salvage the week on the road on Saturday, but a chance to, uh, it is weird because this is a totally foreign thing where you're playing a new team. And I would want to, like, I kind of want to ask Jonas after the game on Saturday, what completely new scouting report, completely new team you have not played before in the middle of the stretch does for a team, if it's a helpful or not thing. But this is a new phenomenon. So these teams are all just kind of on the go, having to re-prep a, a team they haven't played, uh, both on the men's and the women's side. And so I'm just curious, like that dimension of it, what that is like for these teams. It's got to be, you know, at least unique to see a different mascot that you've never seen before, you know, on the other side. Like, obviously, for the men, it's a home game. For the women, it's an away game. But what are these players going to go to Miami of Ohio? Like, absolutely, I mean, no disrespect. Maybe they will work there or something. Maybe, you know, but as far as just specific Georgia and Ohio connections, I mean, this is not exactly a matchup that really lines up that you would expect and think about. So, I mean, we, how often has Georgia state played the Mac the last few years in football? And we still talk about how the Sunbelt and the Mac doesn't really do anything, you know, even if they, and I'm treading very lightly here, even if they structurally can be similar conferences, I don't think they are in terms of actual play, but regional-ish um, for the Mac and the yes. pretty regional. Yes, that's that's where I'm going yeah. with that. Yeah, I think it's more like a couple of teams in the Mac really hate a certain rival and there's also some outliers. It's like okay, Toledo and Buffalo don't really care that much about each other as fan bases. And so I think you avoid a little bit more of that in the Sunbelt where there's a lot more of that regional connectivity, but the ones doing it the old way as other conferences are just spreading the board and spraying the board and trying to get as many different parts of the country in their conference as possible, which I'm not sure how it's going to work, especially on the mid-major level for the programs, the conferences that are doing that. But yeah, it almost feels right that these conferences are lining up, even though that's more of a football thing than a basketball thing that, you know, they're playing this series in basketball. I feel like I, I mentioned the coaches thing as well, because I feel like that'll be the determining factor in how long this lasts. Because, like, if the coach's feedback is, like, we hate this, we don't want to play a random game in the middle of February, then this might not be a long-term thing. But, you know, for Georgia State's perspective, more on the men's side, although with them losing, I guess you can't really make the uh, strength of schedule argument as as well because they're kind of a drag on a lot of teams' strength of schedules as we speak right now. I feel like it was still a good way to get to like opponents on the schedule that maybe instead of that last year, Georgia State was playing a non-D1. I think it's better overall. And the fact that they're matching the second matchup to a similar team in the net is helping it be a good opponent for these teams to play at this point in the season. So I think it's a positive. I just, I kind of hope the coaches do as well, but I am, I'm curious leaning towards, I wonder if they don't love it. And so that's why I kind of want to know more about that. But 
if this is the last time it happens, uh, it'll wrap up on Saturday with these uh, games with Georgia State and Miami being the only pairing to play on both in both the men's and the women's game. That's all the time we have for you this week. But of course, got to talk about everything going on in Georgia State sports before we let you out of here. Starting on Wednesday, got a pair of basketball games, as we talked about before. Women's basketball hosts Arkansas State in the Convocation Center at 6.30 p.m. You can catch that on ESPN+. And then at 8 p.m., men's basketball takes on the Raging Cajuns in Lafayette. You can catch that one on ESPN+. Or listen to Dave Cohen live on the call on WRSFM 88.5. Moving on to Friday, softball heads down to Orlando for the UCF Black and Gold Classic multi-day event. Uh, they'll be facing Howard at 10 a.m. and then at 12.30 taking on UConn, while men's tennis hosts Charlotte and Atlanta at 2 p.m. Moving on to Saturday, women's tennis plays Florida A&M in Tallahassee at 10 a.m. Softball plays Howard again. At 12.30 p.m., women's basketball heads up to Oxford, Ohio to play Miami of Ohio in the Sunbelt MAC Challenge at 1 p.m. You can catch that game on ESPN+, Plus. while men's basketball host Miami, Ohio at 2 p.m. in the Convocation Center. You can catch that one on ESPN+, Plus or listen to Dave Cohen live on the call on WGTJFM 97.5. Softball will play Seattle in Orlando at 3 p.m., and women's tennis will play Florida State in Tallahassee at 3.30 Moving on to Sunday, men's tennis hosts FAU in Atlanta at noon, and softball plays UCF in Orlando in their last game of the UCF Black and Gold Classic at 12 p.m. And that is everything happening in the next week before we see you back again on the Thursday Night Podcast. So until then, get out there, support the Panthers, and we'll see you later. Have a good one. Bye-bye.